Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask podcast. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Elif Batuman, a writer and essayist whose first novel, The Idiot, has just been released. She's also a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she has published numerous essays. Batuman is the daughter of Turkish immigrants and grew up on the East Coast. Her first book, The Possessed, was about her experiences with Russian literature and her travels around the world. Elif is joining me in studio today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I want to ask about something that I heard you say uh, not that long ago. You you talked about after working on a tight word count for so many years, uh, where you basically thought of editing as another word for condensing, and this was when you were writing nonfiction, mm-hmm. that working on a novel, it was hard to override those instincts to distill and to define. So can you talk a little bit more about that? What was it like to finally finally do a novel? Well, um, I that was something that I came to actually from reading um, from reading a bunch of different things, uh, I do really like detective novels, and it's very hard if you're um, if you're producing super condensed essays for a magazine to not turn off your internal editor. So I would be reading detective novels and being like, oh, you know, those lines of dialogue didn't do anything. This scene could have been cut, and then I realized that if I had my way, then that novel would have been like maybe 10 pages long instead of 300 pages long. And then I thought, do I really want that? And then I, that's how I kind of came to think of writing and reading in a book as being something that has rhythm and pace. And it's like almost like a movie, like it's an experience that lasts a certain length of time and not every single sentence has to deliver. Because in nonfiction, I'm used to trying to cram the maximum amount of information in as, you know, where the, the, only limit is total impenetrability, like how much can I cram into a small space? And with a book, it's not like that at all. And um, I guess another other books that I got that message from were um, the Knausgaard and the Ferrante books that I, like a lot of people, were reading. And those also, they were, they're longer than they have to be. They're not super edited, but you go into them and you have this kind of immersive experience. And I decided that that was what I really wanted to do in the novel, whereas The the Possessed was more based on um, essays that I'd written already. So I was trying to more do the distilled thing for that. But for The Idiot, I wanted to feel like, you know, like a chair that you get into or a world that you go into. Is, is there a danger of that, that you'll become sort of too in love with your own prose or you'll become you'll lose sight of the story? Did, did you feel that mm-hmm. that tension or was it was it more just freeing and you enjoyed it? Um. I actually think that the those are two different things. So like falling in love with one's own prose I think is the is more a danger when you're doing super distilled writing because then you there's a pressure to get very fancy and actually um I had a hard time sort of like loosening up and and not caring. Then um the other issue with the idiot in particular which I don't actually think is because of the style but the the plot is actually so the the book has kind of two halves, um, and the first half is, uh, by my standards, carefully plotted, um, and the second half isn't, and that's um, that's actually deliberate. Like what I was trying to describe was the experience of someone falling outside of narrative, which is something that I've experienced before in my life and found very painful and kind of experienced for the first time um, my first year in college, uh, which is when this. This book is about someone's first year in college. So that was something that I was trying to describe. I don't um I I did actually try to keep the style tight and like the the number of jokes per page constant and like the number of surprising or delightful observations constant because the 
plot was not really there. So that I mean, I think some people will. I'll probably lost some people, but I hope not everyone. <laughs> as long as they buy the book, you can lose as many yeah, as you want. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, well, your novel is about a young woman named Celine, who's the daughter of Turkish immigrants. She attends Harvard in the mid-90s and begins an email correspondence with a classmate. Um, and so I, I was just wondering, you, you also went to Harvard, I guess, in the mid-90s. And I was just wondering how you how you decided on the subject matter for the book. Well, I actually wrote the draft of the book that became The Idiot uh, many years ago, like around 2000, 2001. Um, it was it was kind of the first long piece of writing that I wrote before, you know, way before The Possessed, way before anything else. And um, at that point, I was like 23 or something. And uh, so I, I wrote what I knew, which was uh, my life maybe five years ago. And then um, the reason I returned to it uh, I was actually trying to write another novel that was also fairly autobiographical or the, you know, the, yeah, fairly autobiographical, but it was set more recently, like in 2010 or so. And as I was writing that novel, I found myself, um, it was like a book with a lot of compromises in it and just difficult situations and a lot of politics and uh, it, it took place in Turkey. And um, I kept doing this thing that you see sometimes in novels where they're like, if you really want to know how it happened, it all started here. And I kept doing that in each chapter. And the, the point where it all started would go earlier and earlier. And at some point, I felt like I couldn't explain the story of what happened to this person in 2010 without saying what happened to her when she was in college. So I, I was, so the book was like massively overdue and I was sitting there writing like a college flashback, like an insane person. And then I remembered like, wait, like, why am I trying to recreate college memories like a chump when I have a whole draft somewhere, which I hadn't looked at in a long time because you know how stuff when you, that you write a long time ago is super embarrassing. So then I looked at it then and, and actually realized that I had to do that book first before I could do the novel that I'd been trying to write that actually even though the the college book is about a very kind of innocent, ignorant person, the beginnings of those compromises are are already kind of there. When you went back and you read this thing that you had in a drawer or wherever people people it was, keep it was things. in the cloud. Oh, it was in the cloud. Okay, yeah. that's not as romantic, but uh, yeah. in the cloud. Did did you find that your perception of things had changed in some way? Looking back on yourself ten years earlier, what was there something where you thought like? I've really changed. Yeah, my perception about everything changed because, I mean, that's actually why I called it The Idiot. That was not the original title. First of all, when I when I looked back, at the time I was writing it, all of my sympathy was with Céline, who has, she has all these kind of like alienating experiences with her professors and like she goes to a counselor at the student health center and like the guy's just kind of a doofus. And when I reread it, all of my sympathy was with the professors and the counselor because, you know, by now I I went to grad school. I got a PhD. I've taught undergraduates. I've, you know, I, I know how hard it is to talk to undergraduates from, a you know, when you're 20 years older. And that was where all my sympathy was. And the, the other thing was, I think part of the reason why I set the draft aside when I did was because it's a book about a lot of... Um, embarrassing, awkward situations, which I think like a, a lot of people I felt ashamed of, like I felt ashamed of all the mistakes I made when I was 18. And that was the case even when I was 23. But it wasn't really the case at age 38 when I was looking back at it. It just seemed, none of it seemed shameful anymore. It just seemed like a human story about someone who, you know, is 
well prepared in some ways and really not prepared at all in other ways for adult life like what's there what's there to be ashamed of so the when i was rereading it the the parts that moved me were the really visceral descriptions of what it felt like to be in that awkward embarrassing place and i ended up leaving those in and removing a lot of this kind of like tissue of um wisdom the wisdom of oh when we're young we're so foolish which i had written at age 23 to sort of distance myself from the 18 year old narrator and that just looked ludicrous and when i was rereading it i was like no it's the it's all the misunderstandings and the openness that's what's valuable about this book and that's why i called it the idiot um one character says in the book that uh one challenge is to be sincere without sounding pretentious Mm -hmm. is that something that you've thought a lot about yeah definitely um i feel like there's two poles of like i don't know of what rhetoric or whatever self-expression and one is total lucidity where you're saying things very clearly but they're just completely obvious sort of tautological statements and the the opposite pole would be just complete impenetrability where you're you know really aiming high but not so high that you can't convey anything to anyone and i I had this idea when I was younger that you had to choose and I wanted to make Stylian someone who opts consciously for the way of the pretentious. Like she's like, I would, I, the thing that I hate is banality and lameness and I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and make the sacrifice of maybe sometimes sounding a little pretentious just because that's how much it means to me to say things that are unusual and to, um, yeah, express the particular idiosyncratic things that I think and not speak in cliches. Pretension is fine for this podcast, by the way. I just want to put that out there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, for both of us. I just want to put that out there. Oh, all right. I'll bear that in mind. I want to change topics a little bit to talk about Turkey, because for people who don't know, you uh, have taught in Turkey and lived Mm -hmm. in Turkey and write frequently about it. So I I just want to ask a little bit about your time teaching there and mm-hmm. what that was like and how it changed you as a writer in any way. Um, yeah, I was a writer in residence at Koch University, which is um, it's a private uh, private university in the north of the city. Um, I was teaching a nonfiction writing workshop there, which was taught in English. Actually, at Koch, all the instruction is in English, like everything The you know, if you go to medical school there, it's all in English. Uh so my students were, um, most of them, some of them were exchange students from the U.S. or from other places, but most of them were um, native Turkish speakers who were writing in English, which was, it was really fun and exciting because they would write these different and surprising things. And they were, the the conventions of writing in Turkey are quite different. So they they didn't totally have the the same preconceptions that American students and American readers have. It was cool to be teaching a nonfiction writing class in Istanbul because it's such an interesting place. So there was one class that I did where I basically had like um, kind of a paint by numbers, write a long form magazine piece class where each week they would have to do a different element of something that might be in a long form culture magazine piece. So like they had to do one week they had to do a, a interview 
Another week, they had to do an interview with a less important person to the story. They had to describe a place. They had to go to some kind of archive and like describe the building and the experience of going there and getting some information that they needed for their story. And they wrote like they wrote amazing stuff. One guy, um, one kid was from Honduras originally, and he wrote about um, the Spanish translator of Orhan Pamuk, who was this you know, melancholy guy. And they they met at the Burger King in Toxim Square. And then for the archive scene, he describes going to the Cervantes Institute in Istanbul and like looking up one of Orhan Pamuk's novels in um, Spanish. And then he's like, I started to read it, but the Institute closed. Like I ate an apple, the Institute closed before I could finish it. It was just great. Did, did you feel that things had changed culturally in Turkey, either from when you'd visited before 2010 or that the country had was sort of fundamentally changing or did it was was it more gradual? I did feel that, but um, I'm actually trying to write about that a little bit now. Um, I don't know also to what extent that's because when I was younger, um, I, I never went to school. I, I was born in the U.S. and I grew up here and I would go back to Turkey every summer with my parents and I would see my relatives and um, I didn't really have a view of Turkey that was unmediated by my family, which has its own political orientation. And then the, the, the first time I traveled by myself in Turkey was in 1997. Um, that summer I was working for the Let's Go Travel Guide series and already I could see some kind of discrepancy between what my, you know, the 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 story that I'd received about this secularist republic where the Kemalist reforms had succeeded perfectly and everyone was really happy. I could kind of get the feeling that that maybe wasn't the case. Um, and then I felt that very strongly when I went back in, uh, first in 2009 and then in 2010. Um, yeah, I've been writing now about actually um, when... When I was three years old in 1980, there was a military coup in Turkey. Um, and as it happened, I was there without my, my, my mother had, um, we'd gone to Turkey together and I was staying with her parents. And then she went back to the U.S. to study for her medical board exams. And I was supposed to just stay there for a week or something and then go back. And then there was this coup and the airports were closed. And I, I stayed there for months. And that was when I really learned how to speak Turkish. Um, and I had this idea of that coup that um, the story that I was really told about it was that it prevented a, a bloody civil war from factions that were going to, you know, tear Turkey apart. And it, it enforced the secularist and feminist ideals of Atatürk. And that was the idea I had for a really long time. And I didn't know that that was not the idea that everyone had. And I've been kind of doing some research and that's, I mean, that's exactly what the New York times had to say about it in, in the 1980s. It was like, thanks to the military civilian life has begun again. A couple went to the movies for the first time in like years and people can walk in the streets without fear. But then when I was in, um, in Turkey in 2009, I remember going to a bookstore and seeing like, I think it was a graphic novel or something about the 1980 coup. And it was this scene of like torture and, 
you know, murders and people killing themselves in prison. And I was like, what? And then I read about it and I saw that all of those things happened too. And that actually that's a big reason that Erdogan came to power was the different groups that were, that really suffered in 1980, which especially the Kurds, but also leftists and religious people, they really came together and they're the ones who, who voted in Erdogan. So it you you talked you mentioned earlier that this you said you had this feeling of guilt I think mm-hmm. was the word you yeah. used I mean it does seem just I'm not an expert on Turkey but it does seem that when you read about people with more secular views in Turkey that mm-hmm. there is this sort of overhanging guilt because for so long secularism could only be defended by the sort of brutal military yeah. and that tension there and now you have Erdogan but it, it does seem that guilt is a is a real feature of sort of secular Turkish. I wasn't familiar with that guilt until Erdogan, but well, maybe it was of, there. among more people, uh, among more thoughtful people, perhaps like yeah, yourself, yeah, that yeah. this idea that the only way you can have women's rights and secularism yeah. is with this enforced military regime, which is obviously not a situation that can last forever. Yeah, yeah, I would say that 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 I mean, you'd have to ask the more thoughtful people to get. I'll bring them in for yeah, yeah. Bring them in Uh, next week. I'm curious along those lines what you what you what your reaction was when you heard about the coup attempt on Erdogan. I don't know where you were. I saw it on Twitter. I saw pictures of the soldiers on the Bosphorus Bridge. I I, um, that was tough. I felt so many things because it was it was this awful summer where just Trump was in the news every single day and and Brexit had just happened and it was like what is even going on in the world. And actually, this is what made me start to write about these things again. So in the 1980 coup, I was in in Ankara and my mother was here. And this summer, actually, my mother went to Ankara for the first time in a while to deal with some family business. And I was going to go with her. And then there was this, you know, ISIS bombed the airport. And then yeah, and then um, then maybe I was going to go and there was I was actually getting in the galleys of the idiot. And and then there was this coup. I was worried about my mother. Um, a tiny part of me was like right in the instant. Was like, oh, my God, is this how it's finally going to end? And then like a second later, I was like, I just felt the sickening feeling like it can't end if it's a. You know, as someone who's not a fan of Erdogan, he can't like he. It wouldn't solve anything for him to be removed by a, a coup. And then, and then, you know, a minute after that, I thought this is just going to empower him to first present himself as a victim again, which he loves to do and which he hadn't been able to do for a while, and to crack down on all his supposed enemies, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, I, I mean, looking at it now, I, I guess those feelings have been confirmed rather than altered, I would imagine, given yeah. the crackdown and the purging that's gone yeah. on there. Yeah, and it was really, I think it was really clear to everyone. I think there was just this sickening, like the minute that it happened, all of the opposition parties had to condemn it, and I, everyone just knew. And now that the leaders of the most, of the coolest opposition party are in, in jail or in prison, it, it's horrible. When you look at Erdogan's interactions with groups like the Kurds, where he initially made some movement, as you mentioned, towards mm-hmm. trying to establish some more um, better relations, yeah. um, and you look at where things are now, yeah. do, do you think that he changed? Do you think that this was always 
that I know there's a metaphor about a bus and democracy in Turkey, but yeah. this this was always where the bus was headed, or that essentially he changed in some fundamental way, and at one point he he was more interested in an inclusive democratic society. That's such a good question, and you should ask that to the more thoughtful people tomorrow because it's something that I I think about so much, especially with Trump, because it's it's hard not to compare Trump to Erdogan, and then you think that at the beginning. Erdogan, however much I didn't agree with, you know, his views on women or whatever, it was unarguable that he made life in Istanbul better. He improved the infrastructure. People could talk more freely about the Armenian genocide. Kurdish rights improved. There was a Kurdish TV channel. Like, lots of things were getting better. That might be one difference between the early months of Trump and the early days of Erdogan. But yes, that things are getting better. But yeah. Yeah, but so... Like, he didn't have to do those things, I think. Or did he? Maybe it was, yeah, there's that famous quote where he said, democracy is a bus and I'll get on it as long as I want and then I'll get off it. So maybe, you know, doing things that people like was a bus that he got on as long as he had to to win the hearts and minds. And then after that, it was just about holding on to power. Like in 1984, like the the goal of power is always power. Nobody takes power with the intention of, giving it up at some later point. Maybe that's true. I don't know. Last Erdogan question. Yeah. Do you sort of see him now as another in a long line of Turkish rulers, or do you think he's he's different in some way? I mean, do you think that we're headed for another sort of dictatorship along the lines that, uh, another sort of di- dictator or strongman along the lines that Turkey has had, you know? Like who else? Well, I'm just saying there was there was no there was no democracy you know, really, for oh. you have you have the army essentially ruling things. Is that is is Erdogan another? Yeah, I would say is that is he it's, a break from history, or in in a weird way, just a continuation of it? No, the 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 explanation that I find the most persuasive is that it was a transfer of power. That he's really just transferred it from the military to this executive, which he's now trying to strengthen with the constitutional reform, and that it's um, yeah, it's more of a transfer than a change. Have you been amused by all the talk of a deep state here uh, in the age of Trump? Oh, I've been so confused by it. Um, yeah, I haven't I haven't been following it. Uh, well, people have just been saying, because there have been all these leaks from presumably the intelligence community and the bureaucracy yeah. trying to undermine Trump, that people have been calling it a deep state and a lot of people have compared it to Turkey. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Semi-humorously, but... I, I guess, like, some part of me... I don't know. The way the New York Times covered Erdogan in like around 2007, 2008, I was extremely annoyed by because I thought it was in this, um, you know, they would say things like the secularist elite is scared that they won't be able to wear mini skirts and drink alcohol. Like that was something that was just in the New York Times. And a tiny part of me is like, there was just such a double standard between what American liberals thought was okay to be happening in Turkey versus what they thought was okay to be happening in America. And now that I see that the gross excesses in America are going the way of Turkey and that there is a reason for the military to have some organization like that, the the tiny part of me feels some tiny part of me that I'm not proud of feels some, I don't even know what it is. It's not quite schadenfreude because it's also it's also a kind of satisfaction that now they see that 
problems are problems. It's not like Turkey has Turkish problems and America has American problems that, I don't know, that maybe we'll, maybe this will be good for us in the end. Um, I want to ask you about one other country, um, which is, uh, we're just going to go around the world, Okay, yeah. which is Russia, uh, which you've traveled to and written a lot about its literature. What is your engagement with Russian literature these days? Is it still something that's so important to you? I reread my favorites all the time. I have not kept up with the new Russian literature and... One of the things that I wrote about in The Possessed was about kind of choosing Russian literature, even though I had to study Russian, whereas Turkish, I kind of got as a freebie by having a Turkish family. Um, and they were they were always set up as this kind of either or in my mind. And then I, I got that job in Turkey and I, I spent all that time there and... I realized that actually Turkish, some form of Turkish identity, which I thought I didn't have at all, I actually did have. And it's complicated because the particular form of Turkish identity that I had was really based on this um, Kemalist idea of, in a way, being, being, you know, secular and universal and sort of beyond nations. And this idea that I had of myself as being beyond nations and beyond history was super historically conditioned by my parents' generation in Turkey, which got this message that, in a way, Atatürk created. So once I became aware of that, um, my view toward Russian literature actually changed a lot, too. And I, I... started to see that my um a lot of what in in the past people you know I, I studied Russian literature at at Stanford for many years and um people would ask me uh is what draws you to Russian literature the similarities to Turkey because both are the you know they're the only countries that are on Europe and Asia uh, there are some comparisons between Atatürk and Peter the Great um, with the kind of abstract reforms imposed from the top. And when people would say that, I would feel kind of like, wow, like how petty and small-minded of them to think that there has to be a nationalistic explanation for something in me that's so transcendent and universal. And now I'm realizing that that's not true, that it, that of course that's one of the things that drew me to Russian literature is that the tensions there precisely between the universal and the particular and the the Western and cosmopolitan and the village and feudal are, they're the same conflicts that I saw around me when I, when I was growing up. So, um, so in a way I've sort of, I'm focusing more on Turkish literature now. And, um, the next book that I write is going to be set in Turkey, I think, but the Russians are still on my mind all the time in a funny way. They, they feel very related. After The Possessed and The Idiot, do you have another Dostoevsky uh, book title you can appropriate for this book on Turkey? Oh, yeah. There are, there are so many. Um, but I, I think that the book on in Turkey so far, the title is Swan Park. Okay. Last question. Uh, you, you wrote a piece on stoicism. I did, yeah. For The New Yorker. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> one of the things you said in there, um, you can you can tell people briefly what stoicism is, but one of the things you said was the sense of doom and delight that is programmed into the human body, it can be overridden by the mind. Mm-hmm. 
I think a lot of us are feeling uh, doom rather than delight these days. So has, has stoicism uh, helped you uh, override those feelings of doom? Yeah, it definitely has. Although kind of the tension in stoicism, um, which I think is not, it's not I, like the, I think stoicism, I think if you, when, next week when you, when you have a stoic here, they'll tell you that that, that stoicism actually has it accommodates that tension, but there there's some tension between accepting everything as it happens and accepting the whole great web as some larger thing and um, political resistance. It, there's a there's a sort of one is almost inclined to think from reading stoicism that the the ideal state would be a kind of passivity, which I think is not actually what stoicism is saying. They're saying more. Um, do everything you can do in the world of action. Don't want things to happen a certain way. Don't tie your desires up with the way things go. And then within that, just do think a lot about your duties and your responsibilities and what you actually can try to do and, and don't think so much about the effects, which is which is a useful message. So and, and it's been helpful for you. I would say so, yeah. Okay, that's good. So yeah. bad reviews doesn't matter, just stoic. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Bad reviews, totally. Trump, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's not a good situation. Um, Elif Batuman, thank you so much for joining me. Your new novel is called The Idiot, and it's just out this month. Um, and good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas, and the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. To make sure you never miss an episode of I Have to Ask, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also, take a few moments to rate and review the program. I'd love to hear from you, too. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's a- S-K at slate.com. 